0: Today we are going to read from Chapter 4 of Bhagavad Gita and specifically on the topic of karma. First uh, I'll speak briefly about the word karma. The Sanskrit word karma is from a Sanskrit root, which means to do or to make. And so uh, karma, of course, literally means action. But since the Vedic culture, especially let's say Bhagavad Gita, is analyzing through a spiritual science exactly what it means to be a human being in this world and since as krishna says in bhagavad-gita that uh, that no one jatu that no one not even for a moment in this world not even for a moment jatu ever can remain without doing something so we have to act at every moment because we are forced to act by the modes of nature we are forced to act at every moment we have to do something our free will is to choose what we will do it's like if you're driving your car At a certain speed, you can't stop the car instantly. Your only choice is where to drive it. You can steer the wheel, but you can't stop the car. Because in our case, the momentum, our existential momentum is coming, of course, from our karma. So, therefore, because to exist in this world, according to Bhagavad Gita, is to be active at every moment, to be doing something at every moment. Uh, We can only talk about liberation from this world or even living well in this world if we thoroughly understand action. And so the word karma, from the Sanskrit root kur, to do or to make, we still have uh, English words from the same root, English words like create, or increase are linguistically related to the Sanskrit creed to do. So uh, chapter four, we often have the custom of uh, giving a class on a verse. And so that can give us the impression that each verse stands in isolation, which it does in a sense, because every verse of Bhagavad Gita is profound and contains and conveys significant knowledge. At the same time, Krishna, like any normal person in his book, is there are paragraphs, he's speaking, there are topics and there are paragraphs within chapters. And so um, in one sense, we could say that chapter four of Bhagavad Gita, is a type of, uh, well, I think something's about to happen. Okay. Hare Krishna. Aloha. Hare Krishna. So, um, one could say that Chapter 4 of the Bhagavad Gita is a type of essay on karma. And so I want to go through that chapter and and, uh, try to explain what Krishna is talking about because he's... He's coming at this concept of action from many different angles. And ultimately he's going to come to a conclusion. And in his conclusion, uh, toward the end of chapter four, there's some very famous verses that some of you may know. So we'll see those in in context. So in chapter four of Bhagavad Gita, uh, Krishna begins, by giving, so to speak, the pedigree or the history of the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna says that to Arjuna, that this is not the first time I'm speaking this, that the Bhagavad Gita is not simply an earthly bestseller. It's not simply a book on earth. Because I spoke this to Vivaswan, who is the son, Surya. I spoke this Krishna calls it this unperishing yoga. Of course, the word yoga in Sanskrit means many things. And uh, because Krishna in chapter four is going to talk a lot about karma, uh, the word yoga often means, and in the Bhagavad Gita it often means, uh, practice in the sense of philosophy and practice. You know, here's a theory or philosophy, like in science, there's there's the idea and then you carry out the idea. So... Krishna uses the word yoga like that uh, yeah, yeah. earlier in the Gita, in chapter three, or is it I think mean, maybe in cha- actually maybe it's the next chapter five, where Krishna contrasts the word yoga with the word Sankhya. Krishna will say in chapter five, Sankhya Yoga Pratag Bala Pravadanti Napandita. That he says literally those were childish, bala. Those who are childish claim pravadanti. Vadanti means they say. And if you say Pravadanti, it means like they claim that. So Sankhya Yoga Pratag Vala, Pravadanti, those who are childish claim that Sankhya and Yoga are different. Pratag. And so here he Krishna really is using the word and Sankhya and Yoga, of course, there's what is called the Shadarshana or or the six. Viewpoints of the f- six philosophical systems, and those six systems are generally grouped in pairs like Nyaya Vaisheshika or Uttara Purva and which would be the uh, Karma Mansa and then the Vedanta, and also Sankhya Yoga. So, Sankhya Yoga in Sanskrit philosophical jargon, and Krishna uses it that way also uh, in different places, Nagita means something like philosophy and practice and the practice is the yoga. So, so therefore, when Krishna here says, I spoke this unperishing yoga to Vivasan, Suryadeva, uh, this ties in very closely with what he's going to say in the next chapter about sankhya Yoga in the sense that, because this chapter is going to be about activity. And what krishna will say in chapter five is five is ekam even one ekam api that if you stick to if you really uh uh yeah stick to let's say one of these either a philosophy or practice you will enjoy or you will achieve the results of both. That's why people that say they're just different are childish because actually, if you're very good at philosophy, and you're very serious and sincere about knowledge, it will lead you to practice. Because someone who's serious about knowledge is not a hypocrite. Hypocrites are not serious about their knowledge. People that are serious about their knowledge are not hypocrites. So if you're really into philosophy, that will lead you to practice. And if you are serious about your practice, you'll figure out what you're doing someday and then you'll have knowledge. And so here Krishna is talking about um, that he spoke the unperishing yoga, this unperishing yoga, meaning Bhagavad Gita, to Vivasvan. And then Vivasvan Manave Praha, Vivaswan Ma, uh, then taught it to his son Manu and Manu to his son Ikshaku. And of course, then Krishna describes the parampara. This is this is evam parampara praptam. This is the system of receiving this knowledge. And then, but unfortunately, sakali nehamata by great time, which can either mean powerful time or just a long time, by great time, sakali nehamata yoga nasta. This practice or this spiritual science was lost. And therefore, Krishna today he tells Arjuna, right now I'm going to again. Speak to you this primeval Puratana spiritual science. He said, Because you're my devotee and my friend. Of course, then Arjun objects. Arjun, you know, throws up a red flag and says, Krishna, you're my age. Because Krishna and Arjun were roughly the same age. And he said that Vivaswan uh, is a lot older than you. And so, how can I understand that you spoke to him? And then Krishna says, "Actually, I've taken many births, and you too, are June. I know them all, but you don't know them all." And then Krishna starts to talk about his avatar. He, he, he of course, the famous verses, Yadaya Dharma Sagar Divarata. But in a sense, I mean, these verses are all extremely important in their own right. But we're going to focus on Krishna's essay, Krishna's discussion of action. And after talking about all this, how he comes as an avatar, how he restores dharma, how he saves good people and eliminates bad people. So after explaining all that, Krishna's, because when Krishna says, for example, in the Gita, like, I'm the source of everything, or I create the world. those, Krishna's talking about himself as God, who's above the world. But in Chapter 4, Krishna's talking about himself as acting in the world. And so this, of course, brings up a perennial controversy, which has been going on for thousands of years, and probably will go on for thousands more years. It brings up this controversy that, well, it's one thing to say there's a God who's way above everything, and beyond this world, It's another thing to say that God is actually inside the world and doing things within this world. That's another thing. So therefore, the doubt is, or the question, or the controversy is, uh, when Krishna comes down here, does he get entangled? It's just like, let's say, for example, I was born in, in California. But if I go to India, then I become you could say entangled or involved in the conditions there, starting with the weather and the legal system. 100%. You know, there, there's the weather, there's a the legal system, there's the culture, there's a the social system, there's the food because, you know, you have to eat and so you have to eat what is offered there. And so even though I'm from one, same thing, if you're an Indian, you come to another country, If you go to say Bulgaria, which I know all of you plan to do the near future but anyway the idea is if you're in one place if you're in one place actually i have a really wonderful disciple from bulgaria so if you're in one place and you go to another place you become subject to the conditions there so naturally the question arises if krishna is in a spiritual world and god comes to this world to what extent if at all does god become conditioned by entangled in involved with the special conditions of the material world. And this is something, of course, which the Bhagavatam talks a lot about. Bhagavatam talks a lot about this because perhaps most of all, because when Krishna comes to this world, he doesn't just come like in the Bible when God appears to Moses as a burning bush that's you know that burning but never consumes itself or as some kind of, You know, like in Monty, and there's a Monty Python movie, The Holy Grail, where God appears as kind, you know, as this sort of boxy head in in the sky. So we're not talking about a divine appearance where God, you know, flash of light or some type of revelation. We're talking about Krishna really coming down here to do business. Krishna in a human body, not or we'd say human-like. It's not that he's so. Is he a human being? Does as some people have concluded, I mean, for thousands of years in India, some people came to the conclusion that, well, if you consider that Krishna came to this world with two hands, and you know, in a human-like form and actually appeared within a particular family, a particular dynasty, then the conclusion would be, well, even if God is divine, I mean, hopefully God, God's not divine, I mean, who is? But so even if there's some kind of divine God, some kind of supreme being, it appears that when Krishna comes to this world, that divine being simply appears as a human being. Somehow there's a human body and within that human body is some type of divine spirit. And that's the conclusion that many people have come to for thousands of years. The problem is, uh, that's not actually what Krishna does. And yet, so many people think they do. Many Hindus think that's what Krishna does. And that's why Krishna will say in chapter 8, when Arjuna says, how should I meditate upon you? And Krishna will say, um, as one who has a chintya rupam, an inconceivable form. In other words, what you see is not what you get. Because we are looking, when we look at Krishna, or people who were alive at the time who actually were contemporaneous with Krishna who were on this earth and they looked at Krishna, they're looking through their eyes and they, that's, that was probably not a revelation to anybody. But anyway, but the, the idea is that we are conditioned. We are conditioned. For example, someone sees, let's say a classic movie, which sophisticated critics thinks is a great achievement and someone says yeah that was boring man i mean god that was like that was stupid you know so so someone sees it one way and someone else thinks it's a great work of art someone thinks that classical music is boring someone thinks that you know these are works of genius or you hear a politician give a speech and someone thinks wow tell it like it is that was great someone else thinks this person is a psychopath Actually, a lot of people think that nowadays about certain <laughs> politicians. So, um, actually a lot of people have good reason to think that about some politicians. But anyway, we won't go into that now. But obviously, you could say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, ugliness is in the eye of the beholder. We, you know, we see sometimes what we want to see. And this is, I mean, this is psychology 1A. I mean, there's some things that if you physiologically are reasonably healthy, your senses are working roughly within the range of normal. When you look up at the sky, it appears blue to you. Or if you're, so so there are certain basic perceptions. Like, for example, as a bona fide guru, I actually know that we're in Corvallis, Oregon right now. Right? Only a guru could know that. But I mean, so what I'm trying to say is there are certain, there are certain basic things that we know. But then there are subjective things like, Metaphysical things, the value of something or the ultimate meaning of something. And so, uh, Krishna tells Arjuna in Bhagavad Gita, chapter 11, that you cannot really see me. So, I have to give you like these divine 3D glasses. You know, you can't really see me. Uh, so, I'm, he says, Dadami Divyam today. I now give you divine eyes. Now. Then he says, may now see me, now behold me, because I've given you the power to see me. So you have this very, um, what's the word? This very uh, complex situation where you have a divine being who comes to a material world. That divine being comes in a human-like form almost everybody that's looking at him is looking at him with material eyes, you know, like they say, rose-colored glasses or some other colored glasses. And so, and, and, and this person's explaining himself, and then some people step in and think, no, 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 when he says that, he really means something else. And so, and so I mean, there's thousands of years, for thousands of years, uh, you know, sort of self-appointed geniuses, have been saying that when Krishna says this, he really means something else. And then, as and then as Prabhupada points out, um, if someone, you know, it gets into the whole topic of esoteric and exoteric language. And and uh, the word for eso- esoteric means that it's not what it appears to be. Like you say something, but it has a hidden meaning, or some, you know some secret meaning that you have to be initiated you have to be trained and enlightened to really know what it means for example you can read a poem even even in mundane literature that's highly symbolic you may think it's just a poem about a tree and a flower but it's really about life and it's about the agony of old age or this or that or and 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 so so krishna uh he says actually, Krishna addresses this very issue of of who is he? And and you know, what is his body? He says, Avajananti Mang mudha. Those who are bewildered mudhas, or those who are foolish, uh they literally I mean, how does Prabhupada translate that? They uh Avajananti. He translates that as um Somehow they minimize me or something. What the word literally means, ava. ava in Sanskrit means down, downward. Like avatara, literally the down crosser. Avatara, one who crosses down from the spiritual realm to the material realm. So jananti means they know. And so avajananti, to, to know downward means to minimize, to reduce someone, to make them less than they really are. That's literally the word Krishna uses, avajananti. So he says, those who are foolish uh, think that I am less than I really am. They don't understand my spiritual nature. So so the reason I mention all that is because Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, it's in this chapter. Is there water in the house, by the way? I uh, I think that's in my contract that I get water. (laughs) So, um, because it's really in Chapter 4 that Krishna begins to talk about what you could call, in, in in you say academic language, Avatar Theology. It's in Chapter 4 that Krishna begins to talk about how he comes to this world, why he comes to this world, and who he really is. And so that's a very, but I want to get to the part of karma because I, I don't give refunds, so I better talk about what I said I was going to talk about. So no one will try to get a refund. Um, so after talking about his avatar, beginning of chapter four, it's very interesting. It, it's really the section of Gita, the Gita where Krishna goes into this philosophy of the avatar: who who is Krishna? How does he come to this world, and so on? And then the verse I want to now focus on, four fourteen, because it it sort of it sort of concludes what Krishna is saying about his avatar. And it also introduces the next topic. It's sort of like a transitional verse. Actually, I'm going to... Someone just pull this a little bit that way. And whoops. And I'm going to sit like that's a little more comfortable for me. So I don't sink into the couch and then, you know, what a way to go, right? What do they put on my tombstone? You know, sank into a couch and was never seen again. So, anyway, uh, in... In chapter, in in, in 4.14, actually let's go back one, actually let's go back two to 4.12. I promise I won't go back infinitely. So in 4.12, Krishna makes a very interesting statement. He says, Desiring uh, perfection from their work. People worship what we call demigods, the, the, these rulers of the universe who are not the supreme god, but uh, they're sort of, it's sort of like Thor and Zeus and all that, you know, the, the, these nature gods or demigods. Anyway, let's go to 4.13. I, I don't want. To, then Krishna says that he's created a system, a social system for human beings. And then he says, Tasyakartara mapimang. So here we're really in 4.13, really get into what Krishna wants to say now. He says, know me, mom know me to be, in fact, the, the creator, the doer of this system, the one who made, the maker, that's probably the best translation here, the maker of this system. Krishna says, I created a social system. Again, this is God, not just doing things in heaven, not just hanging out with angels, This is God coming to the world and really kind of, you know, putting his, as they say in Brazil, you know, putting his hands in the dough. I mean, really getting involved here. This is Krishna really getting involved in the world, creating a social structure, a social system for human society, which is also mentioned in the Rig Veda, of course, this varnashram system. So in a sense, it's here because Krishna created a system for this world then the question arises uh does he get entangled like for example let's say i go to india and the government hires me this is extremely unlikely but let's say i went to india and i got hired to somehow reorganize some kind of social thing in india again this is not going to happen but if i did that then i would somehow be entangled in the system because people could complain okay it was your idea to do this and because of that my family you know was injured and that happened, and the economy was affected. And so when you start tinkering in a particular country or world, you're responsible. And so in a sense, Krishna is talking about, he's already talked about how he uh, saves the pious people, the good people and eliminates the those who are wicked. So that's an involvement. And then he says, in a larger sense, I've created the whole system. I've created a whole system for this world of how, society should be organized, how they should function, how people should, you know, it, it, it's like when you're driving on the road, there, there's traffic lights. When you see a green light and you just hit the gas, uh, you're assuming that people going the other way will in fact honor their social contract and stop at the red light. And you're also assuming that the people who are in charge of keeping the lights working properly or honoring their social contract and doing their job properly, you're assuming a lot of things. So, and yet it, it's because you know people stop at the red, they go at the green, the person who's supposed to uh, do the maintenance on the traffic lights actually showed up and you know put the right bulb in the right place or something. So it's really because everyone cooperates, everyone does their duty, that you can have all this high-speed traffic and yet if everyone follows the law, people don't crash. Because the system's made that way. So Krishna's created the social system where everyone's running around pursuing their life, fighting for their interest, for their family, for the country, and yet if everyone follows the rules, uh, you don't get a disaster. Society actually functions. So that's what Krishna has created. And then he says, and here's the point he's introducing a very important concept. In a sense, the rest of the chapter is going to be about this idea. He says that Katasya Kartara Mapimang. Even though I am the maker of the system, know me as the eternal non maker. Or even though I'm the doer of this system, know me as the non doer. This is obviously paradoxical language. A paradox is an apparent contradiction. Contradiction just means like uh, yes and no. What's that nice Beatles song? You say yes and I say no. But anyway, So that's an example of contradiction. You know, so so there are just things that both can't be true. For example, if I say I'm in Corvallis right now, I'm in Paris right now, both those statements cannot be true, at least not in the same way. But if I say, let's say I say poetically, it turns out then this is kind of uh, scary that I'm poetic, but let's say if I say that um, I'm in Corvallis, but actually I'm in Paris, but what I mean is my heart is in Paris or just something like that. So that's a paradox. It means I don't mean in the same relevant sense that I'm physically in Corvallis and physically in Paris. That's not what I mean. I'm making a point and using paradoxical language to bring out some dramatic thing that I left my heart in Paris or something, which with all due respect to Paris didn't actually happen. But anyway, So Krishna here is using paradoxical language. He's he's saying, I am the karta, I am the doer, but know that I am the akarta, I am the non-doer. It's just like the Bhagavatam uses paradoxical language. Ajojata, the unborn is born. The Isopanishad uses paradoxical language. Tadejati, Tanaijati, the absolute moves. It doesn't move. It's far away. It's close. It's inside everything. It's outside everything. So this paradoxical language, which you find throughout Shastram, in fact, actually, throughout wisdom literature, is what I call literary speed bump. You know, it forces you to slow down and think. So, um, so Krishna says, "Know me to be the doer. Know me to be the non-doer." And then, and then in the next verse, then he explains what he's talking about. Now he really dives into the topic for the rest of this chapter, or for most of the rest of this chapter. He says that, namang karmani limpanti, namang karmani limpanti, which means actions, karmani is just the plural of karma, that actions do not contaminate me. Actions don't contaminate me. Now, now of course, to understand what Krishna is talking about, you have to know something about this powerful wisdom, which came from South Asia, and which also was embraced enthusiastically by Buddhism. So in two of the great world religions, there's the notion that action in this world, karma, Somehow uh, produces a what you could call philosophically a booby prize. In other words, there's some there's some negative result, because if you understand there's that there's reincarnation, samsara, this turning of this wheel of birth and rebirth, and that there are really some factory defects in material life. You could say there's some there's some built-in defects that you really can't get around. Like in Krishna explains them. There's birth, there's death, there's old age and disease. And so, I mean, you know, death can ruin your whole day. So the idea is, if you think about it, we spend, we spend a huge part of our life, you know, making sure we don't die, making sure people we care about don't die. And so, The fact that, I mean, the Buddha taught this, but of course it had already been taught for a long time in the Upanishads. The idea that there's something seriously wrong with this world. And it's not that, you know, she done left me, she done gone and left me. You know, it's not just like the old broken heart thing. It's not just that, uh, you know, someone broke my little heart. Or I didn't get the job I wanted, or I don't have as much money as I want, or I wish God would have made me better looking. You know, that's not – it's not just the the little problems everyone faces in this world. There's something much more serious, and that is material nature basically kills everyone. It's like one of those sci-fi movies. I don't know if that's one of your favorite genres, but anyway. It's like in a sci-fi movie where, like, you know, like these, the, these space explorers – Mission Impossible, or you know, Star Trek. Choose your own. You know. they go to some planet. And they're walking on the planet. Suddenly, the planet is alive and it starts to—it's going to eat them up. You know, and it's—you it's, could see. I, if I hadn't been a Hari Krishna guru, I could have written science fiction movies, actually. But anyway, so that's like a typical thing. So in a, there's a sense in which this world literally consumes you—the laws of nature—and so intelligent it's just like you know if someone let's say is if someone is ill has bad health people who are let's say sort of like permanently mentally impaired uh because you know because of drugs or because of some mental problem they may not notice it they may not do anything about it it's like you know they have a serious illness or or something's wrong so that a, a you know, a sane person would be alarmed and would would seek medical attention, but they don't do anything. Sometimes people say, you're just trying to escape. Yeah. I mean, only a moron wouldn't. I mean, what do you do if you're in a house and it's on fire and someone runs out and someone stays in the fire and says, you're just trying to escape. (laughs) Excuse me? Maybe we should just leave that person in the house and give them a Darwin Award. Anyway, so... So there are, there are serious problems here. And so at least in the great wisdom traditions that came out of India, and also, I mean, to be fair, even the Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions, basically every serious wisdom tradition realizes, you know, we have a problem, Houston. You know, every serious wisdom tradition realizes that the fact that we die is a problem because we want to go on living. Sometimes you see this artificial bravado where someone says, I don't care if I die. But uh, actually, not really. Because if you don't, here's a little bit of logic for you. I don't wanna get too technical on you. But um, if you do not place a negative value on the loss of an object, that means you don't really place a positive value on the possession of that object for example let's say you own something like a rusty keychain that you never use and then one day someone says oh i'm sorry i accidentally lost your rusty keychain that you never use and then you say "Oh, that's okay that was just a rusty keychain that i never used but let's say someone says oh sorry you know my bad i lost your baby What? Yeah, yeah, I put them down. I just, I can't remember where I put them, but you know, my bad. (laughs) So obviously, again, if the loss of something doesn't really bother you, that means you didn't put much value on it. Because the more you value something, the more negative value necessarily attaches to the loss of that thing. So people that say, I don't mind, death, obviously must have pretty miserable lives because they don't place any positive value on their life. They don't place any positive value on their life. But sane people do place positive value on life. And therefore, wisdom traditions all over the world from the beginning of time uh, have tried to figure this one out. Like, why are we in this situation? And... In, in India, which is the source of, I would say, the most impressive wisdom the world has produced, if you let me look at it impartially and comparatively, they came to the conclusion that somehow we are trapped in a material system which is forcing us to repeatedly take birth in this world. And every time we take birth, we get to grow old and become diseased. All those that really good stuff, you know, growing old and diseased, and, uh, and then died. And somehow this is going on over and over and over again. And the purpose of life is to break free from this problem. And also, they figured out, and these are sort of general discoveries or revelations that somehow our bondage, the fact that we are somehow trapped in this cycle has something to do with our own actions. In other words, it's not that we are helpless, innocent victims of some cruel and evil deity that's just like toying with us and, you know, torturing us. It's like, that's not what's really happening. It's not that there's some kind of powerful God who's just like some, mentally disturbed child that like tortures insects or something, you know, that's not what's really happening. That somehow we are responsible. In that sense the the, the, this ancient wisdom, this Vedic wisdom is very existentialist. There was a period, um, just to give you a very, have you ever heard of existential philosophy or existentialist? Anyway, it was a very popular philosophy in the fifties and sixties. It was like a big deal and university campuses. And uh, it has a whole history, of course, going back earlier. And one of the, I'll I'll explain to you very briefly what it is and why it's relevant to our discussion. One of the key existential thinkers was an author named Jean-Paul Sartre. And uh, when he was young, he was French. The name like Jean-Paul Sartre, obviously, was French. And he, when he was young, the Nazis, Hitler and his Nazis, occupied his country they occupied france and he saw he saw people french people collaborating with the nazis not most people not everyone not even most people but he saw people collaborating with the nazis even in a sense beyond what they had to do to save their own lives and giving as an excuse that you know what can i do it's it's beyond our control that was so what struck him is that people are not taking responsibility for what they do and the existentialists also traced this to another figure who really needed a good psychiatrist and that was Sigmund Freud and so what does Freud have to do with this and the invention of psychiatry and this is relevant actually because Krishna Krishna doesn't talk about Freud. Uh, but he does talk about these issues and they do relate to this whole discussion of karma. I'm trying to put it into a Serious philosophical context If you know your intellectual history, you will know that when Sir Isaac Newton published his book Showing that we don't really live in Middle Earth there aren't really trolls under bridges and hobgoblins, but actually we live in a rational universe based on laws and so on. Uh, This was an incredible revolution in the Western world. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine right now, It, it sort of changed everything. And there was this passion throughout Europe to develop a science of everything. And that's where you get things like sociology and psychology, like there has to be a science of society, there has to be a science of history, and that was, of course, the um oh, I forgot his name. Um, you know, the, the, the professor of Marx, Hegel. Herr Doctor Professor Hegel. Hegel, who tried to come up with the science of history, and and then Freud wanted to come up with the science of the human mind. So what's the problem? The problem is that if you look at hard sciences true sciences not soft sciences they study deterministic relationships a deterministic relationship means for example that well I won't actually do this but if I if I let go of this cup of water it's gonna fall the cup can't say ha huh, I don't feel like falling I'm, or I'm gonna jump onto the table before I fall because a cup is just a dead thing so you know that's what physics is any of you ever taken a physics course physics studies necessary relationships necessary causes and effects and that's what hard science does it studies necessary causal relationships now the danger in, in trying to come up with a a hard science of the human mind is that it means there's no free will because for example let's say Someone yelled at their spouse, and and they and they say, well, they didn't have any choice. Or let's say something even worse. Let's say someone kills somebody else, and then you say, well, it, it's just like, for example, there was that horrible shooting in Florida. Brought to you courtesy of the NRA. And so, there was that horrible shooting in Florida, and the defense lawyer, I guess, you know, she's she's saying something like, well, you know, he was troubled, he was, and so. So what's going on here, it's the idea, I wanna put all this together so you see what I'm driving at. People in Europe, some people in Europe seeing the atrocities of the Nazis and Stalin and all that. By the way, uh, the leftists, the leftists, the communists killed more people than Hitler uh, with something which left wing university type people don't really seem to pay attention to when they're, you know, communists and everything, that the communists actually killed more people than Hitler. But Anyway, apart from that, um, it's the idea, I mean, let's say, for example, someone treats you badly. It could be, let's say you go to a store and you don't get the service you wanted. It can be a spouse, someone in your family. And they say something like, you don't know what I've been through. So what are they saying? They're saying that I'm not morally responsible for what I just did to you. I'm not morally responsible for mistreating you because I was treated in a certain way or I confronted certain situations, which, which made it just, I had to act that way because any normal person who was put in that situation, I was, in other words, just like you push a ball and it rolls down a hill, which is just physics, hard science, cause and effect. Based on the situation I was in, I had to treat you badly, and therefore I'm not morally responsible for doing so. And so there was this fear that that with this drive inside with, with Freud, who was a little nutty, but, but this idea of psychiatry that to develop a deterministic hard science of the human mind, that no one ever again will be responsible for what they do. In other words, all human morality will collapse and everyone can just say that I'm not responsible. I can kill, I can rape, I can do anything. And why? It's because uh, I was forced to do those things because of the laws of psychology. And so it's really an abandoning of all human moral responsibility. And that's what Sartre saw. And and so existentialism was the idea that reemphasizing, you're responsible for what you do. And, and you are responsible. I mean, in one sense, you could say a very existential authorist is Jane Austen. You know Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice and all those great books and movies. Because in the moral system that, that, that she, and she's like a, you know, ridiculously popular author 200 years after she died, but there's the idea that no matter what mood you're in, no matter what happened to you, you are responsible for what you do. You can't, claim that you're not responsible for how you treat other people by saying something happened to you. So now getting back to Krishna and karma, the discovery in Vedic culture or the revelation which came through Vedic culture was that somehow we are responsible for the fact that we are in the material world. We are responsible for the fact that we are repeatedly taking birth, suffering in different ways, and then dying. And we're responsible for that. Now, the good news here is that if you are responsible for your own existential situation, if you are responsible for the fact that you're trapped in the system, you also have the power to get out. Because if you dug yourself in, you can dig yourself out. And so it's actually a very liberating idea, it gives you, it's an empowering idea. You have the power to transcend this world by your own choices. And Krishna emphasizes this, by the way. There's some, you know, some of the most uh, existential verses, you could say, in Bhagavad Gita are found in uh, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, which I will translate literally for you here, where Krishna says, uh, a person, uh, a person should... Raise themselves up, literally lift themselves up. Utare, by themselves. You have to raise yourself by yourself. That's literally what Krishna says. The Sanskrit is utare atmanat manam not manam avasadiyet. So you see that word atma is repeated three times, which means self. So it's literally you must raise yourself. The self must raise the self by by yourself. You must do it by yourself, and you should not degrade yourself. Not manam One should not degrade oneself. The self alone is this friend of the self. In other words, you are your only real friend. And you are your only real enemy. Very interesting. Krishna is giving you this immense responsibility for your own life you alone can raise yourself by yourself and you alone can degrade yourself you are your only you are your only friend and your only enemy and of course here the words friend and enemy mean you know a friend is someone that does good to you and an enemy is someone that harms you and then krishna says in 6 6 that he emphasized this that the self that You are being a friend to yourself when you you alone conquer yourself, or when you alone you say control yourself. The word jita in Sanskrit, you know jita, but really in a modern context we could translate control. When you control yourself and you really get power over yourself, you're not out of control. Only then are you a friend to yourself. And uh, if you don't control yourself, then you act as your own enemy. You act as your own enemy. And so Krishna in Bhagavad Gita is giving us this complete responsibility for ourselves. He's saying all the power is in your hands. And it's in this context that he's going to talk about action. Because action, by definition, is something you choose to do. If you're walking down the street and someone pushes you and the domino effect, you fall against someone else, they fall against someone, and then you know some poor person is you know pushed into the path of an oncoming I don't know dinosaur that just escaped from Jurassic Park or something and is eaten. Mm-hmm. The point is if you were if you were pushed and you fall, you're not responsible because you didn't choose to do that. That's a very important thing to understand about the word karma. The word karma specifically means something you choose to do, an expression of your free will. That's what karma means. You chose to do something. It is an action, not something that happened to you, but something that you did. And so Krishna is going to talk about free action, things that you choose to do and how those actions Determine your body. It's like in this world. If you act a certain way, you go to jail. You act in a different way, you get out of jail or you don't go to jail. It's very simple. So now we'll get back to those verses we were talking about. I want to wrap this up and uh, give you plenty of time to give me very large donations, even if it puts you at great hardship. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> I, I do amuse myself sometimes by joking. So Krishna says, um, so Krishna, he introduces this very, so you have to understand this central idea in Vedic culture was certainly spread to Buddhism and spread to many places in the world that we have caused our own bondage in this world. We are suffering, we have problems, or just, you know, we have problems, whatever they may be, including the problem of dying, That's all our own doing. That's all our own doing. So when Krishna says, as he does uh, in, 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 um, in 4.14, that my actions don't affect me. In other words, they don't drag me into the material world. They don't contaminate me. There's a way to act in this world that nothing bad will happen to you in the sense that you will not have to take birth again get old again diseased and die there's a way to act because there're lots of philosophers in the history of India and other places also who when they discovered this wisdom that we have that by our actions we are keeping ourselves in this world they say okay solution's very simple Just don't do anything right it's like it's, let's say you're in some situation you're, you're like You know, with some bullies, like anything you say will be used against you. Like shut your mouth, okay? You say, Fred, just don't say anything. Like whatever you say, it's just going to get us in trouble. Don't say anything. You know, it's that kind of situation where if whatever we do produces karma, just don't do anything. For God's sake, don't do anything, and then you'll become free. Christian says, No, sorry, doesn't work that way because now you cut shit, now you cut shit. No one. Chidamapi, even for a moment, jatu, ever, ever, dista-thiya-karma-krit can can remain inactive. Not possible. Because because we're forced to act by the laws of nature. For example, you breathe. Let's say you become a yogi and go up in the mountains and just don't do anything. Well, first of all, you breathe. And, And of course, that's not a particularly aggressive act. But you are breathing, you have to eat. And when you eat, because if you don't eat, you're you're going to leave this world very soon. So let's say that's not the plan. You know, that's not the plan to leave this world, starve to death. The plan is to stay in this world, and be a yogi. You have to eat, but every time you eat, you are interacting with the world. You are affecting the world. You're taking from something from the world. Got a prize tag. You know, you may be a yogi and just sit under a little berry tree and just, you know, eat the little berries that fall. And you know, it's about as passive as you can get, right? Not exactly a you know very nutritious diet, but let's say you're a yogi. So, but again, the tree gave you berries. What are you doing for the tree, dude? You know, it's like, it's like sort of that high class American English. So, what are you? You know, what are you doing for the tree? There's a debt, and because there's a debt to the tree, because you guzzled the berries, uh, therefore. You've got to come back to help the tree out, and so you're 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 not free. That's what Krishna is saying. I and mean, you drink water. You're drinking water, but but there's as we know little microorganisms in the water, and you're drinking them. And those, you know, those little microorganisms, you know, they'll have their day in court. You drink me in your life as a yogi. So it's just the way the world is made. The way the world is made, you Krishna says you're, you can't be inactive and you cannot, as soon as you do something, you're entangled. But Krishna says there's a way to act that you're not entangled. And to, just because to, we haven't got time to go through the whole thing. Briefly, Krishna is going to teach the way you act without being entangled is don't act for yourself. Don't act for yourself. Act for God that's going to be the, uh, the loophole, the cosmic loophole. That whatever you're doing, if you say, I'm just doing it for, and you really are doing it for Krishna, then in that sense, you didn't do anything. It's just like, let's say you're working for the government and and, and you're driving a little post office, those little carts they drive. Let's say you work for the post office just so you could get to drive one of those cute little post office so the point is you're not you know you don't have to pay for the gas you don't have to buy the post office cart because you're working for the post office you're just doing your service or what if you volunteer so the idea is there's a supreme government there's a supreme government krishna we are all part of god god is the supreme sovereign the supreme authority and if you truly obey god and do what god wants who can hold you responsible? Because maya or or, or the, the power in nature that will hold you responsible for your karma is simply a humble servant of Krishna. So if you were truly acting for Krishna, for God, how can there be a reaction? Because you are obeying the highest authority. So that is the cosmic loophole. And that's what Krishna is going to talk about. And Krishna is not entangled because what higher law can entangle God that would that would be silly I mean sometimes you see it there are certain theologies which I think are a little uh, need a little tinkering where they say something like God had to pay a ransom so he sent his son I mean God has to pay a ransom excuse me like who's the bill collector that can compel God so so anyway that's what Christians is explaining so I, I I'm gonna maybe end here and, and you can ask questions or whatever so that's the idea action how you and that's basically it you act for Krishna and that's why bhakti yoga true bhakti yoga it's not like okay once a week I do a little pious thing. it means my whole life is bhakti yoga and, and it, it's not that bhakti yoga has to go on in an ashram or a temple I mean wherever you live wherever you are that should be a temple. There's a there's a very heavy verse in the Bhagavatam. The Bhagavatam sometimes really tells it like it is. There's this verse in the Bhagavatam that says, um uh oh my god, what is that verse that um, what's wrong with me? Oh yeah, Pujang Jakshad Yehate. Natad Chan Yeshu Oh archayameva. That was not age related, that temper that little I forgot that. So the Bhagavatam says, Archa-yam-eva. 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 That if uh, one endeavors to worship the Lord, only in the deity form, so you go to the temple or you have a little deity in your home, Uh, Archa-yam-eva. Uh, So you, you serve the Lord only in that one form, the deity form. But you don't realize that that same deity, the same deity you're worshiping, is actually in the heart of every living being. And in the hearts of the devotees. So that actually every living body is a mandir. Every living body is a temple of the deity. Every living body is a temple of God. Oh, arkshayam eva haraye. Only in the deity form one endeavors to worship Hari, the Lord. So when we go to a temple or in your own home temple, and that's also that's also Krishna, when we worship Krishna, we're practicing. Sharanavaka, we're practicing so that when you walk out of that room, you see that every living body is a temple. So we make one temple where everything is, we have optimum conditions for remembering Krishna. And so that little temple where we do puja, that's where we do our practice because everything there favors that practice. And it's, it's a very easy place to remember Krishna. But every living body is a temple of God. Every living body. So that's why Prabhupada uh, he taught Bhakti Yoga. You know, if if you're driving your car, drive your car for Krishna. Usually meditating on Krishna in your own heart, and you should, you know, you're just driver G. You know, if you if 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 you're if you're driving your car, you should first of all wherever you're going, in your car that act should be dedicated to Krishna. If you're going to buy groceries. Well, you're going to offer your groceries to Krishna. If you're going to take your kid to school because you're helping your child to serve Krishna and to serve Krishna need good education. You need you need to have some respect. I mean, let's say it's much better to serve Krishna if you have some respectable position, education, then you can serve Krishna nicely. And so whatever we're doing is in fact for Krishna. And as soon as we do something that's not for Krishna, uh, you are in deep mahatattva. You know, you're... Soon as you do something that's not for Krishna, then you're on your own. You're responsible, karma, and you know you have to pay for it. So everything we do should be for Krishna. It's like Sanghi, right? She goes to school, very good student, and she's going to school for Krishna, right? So she's. I told her what to say. <laughs> very good. So. But that's the idea. That's the freedom from karma. It's just like there are laws, and and, and, you know, actually, there's too many laws in Oregon. But anyway, you know, wherever we live, there are laws, and so as long as you follow the law, you're free. And as soon as you break a law, because nowadays there are surveillance cameras everywhere. There must be a surveillance camera in this room right now. But anyway. (laughs) So as soon as we as soon as we break the law, then we are liable. Now the government is not omniscient, but Krishna is. The Supreme Government, actually, Krishna, Krishna says my surveillance cameras are everywhere. Or he says sort of paraphrase that in the Gita, right? The universal form, you know, my eyes and ears are everywhere. So watch out. It's like the it's like the Supreme NSA. It's Krishna says that, that my eyes and ears are everywhere. And so he knows when you've been naughty, he knows when you've been nice. So at every moment, everything we do, someone is watching. And the person that's watching has the power to reasonably, fairly evaluate what you did. So as soon as we do something selfishly, uh, We're really going against the nature because Krishna is giving us everything God the, the breath we breathe The water the food our Netflix subscription Right. I mean, you know all the basics. and so Actually Krishna's Krishna's giving us everything and so you receive, it, and he says that if you receive all those gifts, the gift of life, your everything is a gift, and you don't offer back, it's like you, he says you have you have violated this. This there's this wheel. Krishna is, he says it very poetically in the Bhagavad Gita. He says that Avam um, Pravartitang Chakram, that a wheel has been made to turn. That's literally what it means in Sanskrit. A wheel or a cycle has been made to turn, and if you do not keep it turning. Your life, you live in vain, and your life is an offense if you do not keep the wheel turning. And the wheel he's referring to, the cycle, is that we are every second we're receiving so many gifts, and we're offering them back by making our actions service or loving or devotion to the person that gave us all these things. And that's the wheel that's turning, and we're receiving more gifts and offering back. And Krishna says, "If ananu vartya ti I won't get into all the technical Sanskrit grammar, much as I would like to. The fact that it's the uh, causative present third person singular form of anyway. So, so the idea is, Krishna says, it's wheels are made to turn, and you must keep that cycle turning, and you keep it turning by getting, receiving and giving back. So that's Bhakti Yoga. That's freedom from karma." That's what christian's explaining in this chapter. So, as we, as they say in Sanskrit, taksarvang janaha, which means, that's all folks. <laughs> <laughs> so, any questions? And also we have people around the world, they may wanna ask questions, or if any of you, of course, have questions. Yes, please. So one thing you mentioned was, uh, like, uh, it's a really nice class to understand like what activities are keeping you in the group, as, as what activities you should do like in order to get you know, but uh, like uh, as you mentioned about the Sandhiri example, like uh, yes, which, where is she going? She's going to school for Krishna. Right. So how to understand that, like uh, because what activities we do It's for ourselves. I'll give you an example. When I first joined the Hare Krishna movement in 1969, which is 49, 49- 49 years ago. So actually I was, I was like one year old. I crawled into the temple. I'm still very young. Just kidding. So I joined the heart. I joined the temple in Berkeley in 1969. And when I joined the temple, uh, I was a student at Berkeley. I had a scholarship at the top public university in the country. And uh, I didn't know whether I should stay in school or just, you know, drop out of school and go on Sankirtan go out and do more important things like selling incense in the street. So I am, um, So I was told to write a letter to Prabhupada. And Prabhupada wrote back and told me to stay in school. Prabhupada wrote back to me and said, I want you to get a nice education so that you can present Krishna consciousness to other educated people. So good old Sundini, I mean, she has to get a good education. I mean, I'm sure she's a very intelligent young lady. And by getting a good education people will listen to her you know she'll be an educated respectable lady and not only that she'll understand this world because the isopanishad says this very interesting verse Upanishad. this is a real well what we say back then in berkeley mind blower the isopanishad says mm-hmm. Cha chavidhyang Cha jastad vedo bhayang saha." Knowledge and literally unknowledge. I mean, vidya, avidya, or ignorance. We don't mean this. We can't say ignorance and ignorance. But so vidya, knowledge, and avidya, ignorance. Vidyang cha vid, vidya, cha, vidya, cha. One who knows both of them, and, and you have to know uh, Sanskrit philosophical jargon. In Sanskrit philosophical jargon, avidya ignorance means the material world. They just call it the ignorance. It's just called you know the ignorance, the material world. So you have to know the spiritual world and the material world, and then and then the Upanishad says, avidyaam mrityung You cross over death by ignorance. It's very interesting. I mean, I mean the Vedas are, you know, there's a lot of thinking going on there. Avidya, which means by unknowledge, or as it's understood by the acharyas, by understanding this world, the material world, but by avidya you cross over death. By avidya and vidya, by by knowledge of the spiritual, amrita you enjoy immortality. So, for example, if you're supposed to give yourself to Krishna. Atmanivedana, how can you give yourself to Krishna if you don't know who you are? What if you don't know the difference between your soul and your own deep human psychology? How can you sort out your emotions and know which ones are really spiritual and which ones are not? So giving yourself to Krishna implies that you know yourself and and you have to know what's not you, what's you and what's not you, what's your conditioning. And so if you have a sense, for example, of history, if you can locate yourself within history, if you can locate yourself within a particular social system, if you're born in India, if you're born in California, wherever you're born, uh, you take on this huge cultural apparatus. You take on all this conditioning and you have to sort yourself out. People that only know one culture don't know any culture. This is like, if you only know one color, you don't have the idea of color. (laughs) If, if everything in the world looks the same shade to you, you don't understand co- color. When there's two colors, it's just like if every sound in the universe were exactly the same note, the same pitch, you'd have no sense of harmony or melody. And so in the same way, if you only know your own culture, you don't even understand the concept of culture. And people who are like that, kind of like, you know, I don't know, just ignorant people. That's why, I mean, and I don't mean to say anything disparaging, but, you know, people live in small towns sometimes. They just, you know, they don't. They, they, everyone's like them. If you live in Manhattan, if you live even in Corvallis, a college town, you see people from all around the world. You, you see people different orientations and ethnicities and this and that. And after a while, you just think, ah, oh, they're all humans, you know, whatever. So, you know, sort of cosmopolitan. Whereas people, let's say, that live in places where everyone thinks the same, everyone goes to the same church everyone has the same idea about everything they don't have they have no idea that i have a particular point of view that i have a particular culture they just think i'm normal and everyone that's not like us is not normal you know they're weird they're weird they're not like us and 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 so and if you think that way you can't understand yourself you think you're just normal you can't understand you have a specific psychology you have a particular culture, you have a certain way of looking at things because you were brought up in a certain way. And so education, it opens your eyes and it shows you, you're able to understand yourself, your own prejudices, your own conditioning, your own preferences. And when you understand all that, you can separate your material conditioning from your pure soul and you can give your pure soul to Krishna. And so that's the sense in which the Upanishad is saying you have to have knowledge of this world in order to really understand that which is eternal. So, as far as good old Sandini, know Sandini, when you, when you grow up and like really successful and rich, remember how nice I was to you. <laughs> no, 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 no. One more question. Yes. Yeah. The second question is, you talked about like... The, but I right says that it's only self, it's yourself only who have to lift yourself. Yes. And you also talked about devotion to Krishna. So if you are talking about lifting oneself, yes. where is Krishna coming into the- Krishna? Because you choose to surrender to Krishna. A rational human being would come to the conclusion that it is entirely in my real self interest to give myself to God. And there, but only you can do that. Someone can't surrender you to God. Someone can't devote you to God. One time, Prabhupada was talking to uh, some of his disciples, and one of them was Jana who was a famous devotee in the early days of the movement, and he was like the first ISKCON rock star, big Keshean leader, and um, he's a great guy, a great devotee. He passed away, but um, so Prabhupada said to him. You're doing very nicely, because he was preaching and leading character. So you're doing very nicely. And he said, It's all your mercy, Prabhupada. And Prabhupada said, I offer my mercy to everyone, but you accepted it. You accepted it. So, you know, sometimes we have phrases in our philosophy which aren't actually literally in scripture. Like for example, causeless mercy. A word on causeless mercy. Since we're having this existentialist discussion, first of all, the first interesting thing about causeless mercy is it's not in the scriptures, it's not in Shastra. There's no Sanskrit word that literally means causeless mercy. And the reason is because it's somewhat redundant. Because the word mercy means causeless. If you're a judge, and let's say, according to the strict letter of the law, this convicted person should get 10 years in jail. And you say, "Well, I'll give you two years in jail, or something like that." And let's say that you know the person didn't bribe you. You know, as they say, a good lawyer knows the law. A Great lawyer knows the judge. (laughs) 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 So let's say, let's say you reach that decision for no other reason than that you're just the kindness of your heart. That those things happen. So mercy means. It's not for some other reason, but now, so probably use the term "causeless mercy." There's nothing wrong with it. It's sort of like an you could say sort of like an emphatic, you know, didactic redundancy in the sense that sort of you know you use two synonyms to create more emphasis to stress the point. But the problem is that if you take that term "causeless mercy" and you define the term in a way that's not in Shastra, if you take a term that's not in the scripture, and give a definition for the term, which is also not in scripture, uh, you're in la-la land. I mean, you're just, where are you? And so you have these causeless mercy interpretations like, you know, sort of like this competition to see who can be more dramatically humble. I deserve to be born, and, you know, they need some horrible situation. And they always can be very creative when they talk about what they deserve. But I deserve, but... Somehow, by causeless mercy, I became a devotee. By causeless mercy, I didn't deserve this at all. Now, the only thing wrong with that, first of all, it's, you know, it's very nice, noble, humble, all that. Philosophically, though, it's a disaster for various reasons. Number one, because Krishna says that He fairly reciprocates with everyone. If you read Bhagavad Gita literally, I, 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 we published a Gita I, where I gave a very literal translation and 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 a Categorical theological explanation so one thing I explained is that um, Krishna emphasizes in the Gita that he's fair He emphasizes his own justice the word dharma in Sanskrit by the way means justice That's one of the main Sanskrit words for justice dharma And Krishna says he comes to this world to restore justice or dharma and he says he fairly reciprocates. I'm equal. I'm fair with everyone. I don't discriminate. I precisely reciprocate with everyone. So if you are totally undeserving and you are being liberated and saved and someone else equally undeserving is suffering, then what kind of God are we dealing with? I mean, what, what, if, what if a mother has two children and the children do the same thing, and the mother slaps one child and, and, you know, and gives them candy to the other, it's like, what are you doing? I mean, obviously that mother needs to have her children play somewhere else. The children did the same thing, and one of them gets beaten, and the other one, you know, gets rewarded. So if you are totally undeserving, what about all the billions of undeserving people who are suffering? So the idea of causeless mercy, it actually it, it, and plus Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita in chapter six that if you just find yourself drawn to Krishna and Krishna consciousness, despite all the social consequences, yeah, I'm in the Hare Krishna movement. Anyway, if you just find yourself, if you just find yourself drawn to Krishna, Krishna says it is because of your past life that you were somehow involved. Krishna says, in fact, in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter six. It's very clear. Krishna says, in, in, in the Gita, which is an older Sanskrit, uh, the word what, what we now use the word sadhana, like your practice, sadhana bhakti. Krishna doesn't use the word sadhana. He uses an older word, avyasa. So whenever you see the Sanskrit word avyasa in the Bhagavad Gita, it means sadhana. So Krishna says purva purva we have we still we have an english word from the sanskrit purva previous you know prv purva previous so purva vyasana by your previous practice and then Krishna says tenaiva which literally means by that alone by that alone purva te tenaiva by previous practice by that alone a person is just sort of carried away beyond their beyond their control and like, I have to do this. I have to chant Hare Krishna. I have to serve Krishna. Why are they are carried away? Because in their previous life, they were doing this. And it's like their previous, like, you know, if you, if you learned how to ride a bike you haven't done it for 20 years, you kind of still know how to ride a bike. And so again, if you have a term causeless mercy, Uh, That's not in Shastra. You have to be very careful that your definition of the term is in Shastra. Another example, by the way, which I find fascinating, a term which we use all the time, which is actually not in Shastra, is Vedic culture. If you say, what's the Sanskrit for Vedic culture? We're still looking for it. So, it doesn't mean it's a bad, again, causeless mercy Vedic culture it doesn't mean they're wrong. It doesn't mean Prabhupada shouldn't have used these terms. It does mean that you have to be very careful that when you define a non-Shastric term, you must bring a Shastric definition to it. If you have a term that's not in Shastra, that's not a problem. If the definition of the term is in Shastra. And so if you take the non-Shastric term Vedic culture and you give a non-Shastric definition, such as a particular way of dressing, Vedic clothes, Vedic recipes, Vedic architecture, Vedic music, then you are, you went through the rabbit hole. You know, you're in wonderland, basically. There's nothing wrong with the term Vedic culture if you understand that you have to give a Vedic definition for the term. The word Vedic exists in Sanskrit, Vedic. And it's used in the Bhagavatam and in the CC, but in a very different way than the way we use it. Not, but anyway, so it's, um, that's okay though. The term Vedic culture is nothing wrong with it. We can use that term, but we have to understand what it means. It doesn't mean an ethnic tradition. So when we say Vedic architecture, Vedic cuisine, Vedic dress, we are not paying attention. Anyway, that's that's a whole interesting thing. And that's why in our our Krishna West project, we're trying to, I'm trying to do what Prabhupada ordered me to do and give a rational, rational, science, you know, scientific and Shastra-based, Prabhupada-based explanation of Krishna consciousness. So if we try to, you know, convince the public that they need to re-ethnicize, they need to adopt a foreign ethnicity, they need to adopt a different, they have to dress differently, they have to uh, you know cook a particular ethnic cuisine they have to and many of those items for example if you if you if you study Indian culture in a serious scholarly way what you find is there are definitely very powerful universal principles that have endured to the credit of the civilization but in terms of external things like cuisine music dress architecture they're very powerful foreign influences I mean even for example you know it's a very good if you look at very realistic sculpture if you look at sculpture in india we know that there are some deities carved of krishna even used by the goswamis which are not really you could say realistic i mean they're not you know they're sort of very stylistic if you look at rajasthani art if you look at rajasthani paintings it's not realism it's you know it's very stylistic and and yet so anyway there was a tremendous Greek influence in India, because Alexander, as you know, conquered just a little bit of what is now Pakistan. But there was influence, there was all this connection. I mean, there was a very strong Greek presence. There was a Muslim presence. There was a Christian British presence. And that's why, for example, in Hindi, if you know Hindi, there's a very powerful linguistic. I mean, Hindi's half Arabic or half, you know, and, and half yeah. Sanskrit. So you can say Kumar, which is Sanskrit. You can say Larka. Which is a Muslim word. So, so the the influence is linguistic. We know that, for example, for practically seven hundred years, uh, India was ruled by Muslims first, uh, the the Delhi Sultanate, and then the the Mughals. And we know that these rulers, uh, you know, they did a lot of really crazy things, but you know, some good things, a lot of really bad things. But one thing they did is they gave patronage to Muslims in the in the field of music. So in classical Indian music, they gave always gave preference to Muslims. And, and therefore, uh, there's been a very powerful Muslim, you, you could say, you know, that sort of, that's it's been their thing, classical Indian music, for a long time. And if you listen to classical Indian music, it sounds remarkably like the music you hear in Saudi Arabia and, and you know, Iraq and other countries. Or things like Halva, you know, Halva. Which is an Arabic word. So, so there's all that. So, the reason I'm mentioning this is because we really need to present Krishna consciousness as a spiritual science, not as an, an ethnic tradition. The world will accept a spiritual science. That's what the world will accept. Yeah, you do have to go. Sorry, red card. So. So we, um, is the, what did Nietzsche talk about, the irrational will? When you grow up, if you do well, remember me. So don't remember that I threw you out of the program. <laughs> so, so in terms of reviving the Western Hare Krishna movement, I think that's it. We need to present a spiritual science. Not an ethnic tradition, a true spiritual science. What Krishna teaches in the Bhagavad Gita is very simple. I'll explain it in just a few words. Live in the mode of goodness. Live in the mode of goodness and offer that life to me, to Krishna. Live a virtuous life, whether it's your food, your actions, your environment, everything you do, do it virtuously, do it in goodness and offer that life to Krishna. Krishna explains in the Gita 424, Brahma Arpanam, Brahma Havir. It's in the act of Arpan, offering. It's in the act of offering that an object becomes spiritualized. That's Gita 424. So when you offer your life to Krishna goodness, the goodness becomes purified and it becomes Shuddha Sattva, which is our jargon for the spiritual platform. So that's our message to people. Practice virtue, and offer your virtuous life to God. That's it. That's Bhagavad Gita. Christian doesn't say, "Offer me kachoris and 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 chutney and 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 chapatis." He says, "Offer me foods in the mode of goodness." So I think the only real hope we have, you know, if, if this if this thing is going to work, this thing called the Hari Krishna movement. If we are going to really rebuild this and make it what it was when Prabhupada was here and not squander our inheritance from Prabhupada, we need to present a a true spiritual science and give people the freedom within their own comfort culture, in the mode of goodness, not things that aren't goodness, to just love Krishna. That's what Prabhupada said. You don't have to change anything, just add Krishna. Are we really visually, because there's language and body language, Is Our body language, when we go out in public places and do like high-profile festivals, is our body language really telling the Western public, you don't have to change anything? Or is the body language, you actually have to change everything? Studies, as you know, studies show it's the body language that people get, not just, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's the body language. So are we giving the message to the Western public that you can just add Krishna to your life or you have to change everything about your life if you really want to be a serious What What's the message? And is it the right message? Is it scientific? Does God love you more or do you love God more if you choose this ethnic tradition instead of that ethnic tradition, even if the one you choose that God loves actually has a lot of influence from, from Europe from Muslim countries, from all kinds of things, is, is it still true that God loves you more if you adopt that? And if so, why? I mean, is there a, is there a scientific, rational explanation of why Krishna is going to love you more if you adopt, you know, Hindu-Muslim culture as opposed to just adopting the spiritual science? In fact, if you look at one point, just the last point, if you look at the uh, extremely successful uh Indian and Hindu immigration to the west as perhaps the single most successful group of everyone that came and for one thing because people came very intelligent intelligent educated people for the most part and uh they knew how to preserve the essence of their culture at least some of them and at the same time adapt. I mean, if you work for some big corporation, if you do well in the university, it's not because you're trying to impose on your professors. It's not because you're trying to impose on your boss, a bunch of customs from another country. That's if you're successful in this country, that's not what made you successful. It's exactly the opposite. It's that you knew how to adapt. And that's why, you know, people originally from Indian background are the head of some of the most important corporations in the world, governors of states, they're doing fabulously well precisely because they have the intelligence and the ingenuity to adapt. And, you know, whether, frankly, whether you are a very large, woolly mammal or whether you're a religious movement, if you don't adapt, you go extinct. You can't adapt to your environment, whether you're a Brontosaurus or, or a Hare Krishna movement, you know, you go extinct. And yet we have to preserve the essence. And so that's that's the that's the art, the art of devotional service. You preserve everything that's essential. And Prabhupada gave us three essential things that we cannot tamper with. It was like if you tamper with it, you void your warranty, your spiritual warranty. There are three things we can't change. Our philosophy. If someone doesn't like our philosophy it's sort of like you know tough sweet balls it's just that's our philosophy we're not going to change our philosophy our practice Prabhupada gave us a practice of bhakti yoga we can't change that we can, you know we can adjust and make it easy for people but we have philosophy we have practice and Prabhupada gave us an institutional framework he wanted us to be loyal to and, and serve with him and so if we do that if we preserve our philosophy preserve our practice and our institution then we not only can we must adjust other things twice in the Bhagavatam you find the phrase vibhaga Bhagavad which means one who knows Deshakala vibhaga the differences of, of place and time Deshakala. Bhagavad and so once in the first canto of the Bhagavatam praising Bhishma as he's leaving this world and once in the fourth canto when Narda is instructing Druba, He says, you have to be patient And if you look at Prabhupada's purports in both those cases, he emphasizes, he says that, that the need to adapt, to adjust. He says what works in India won't work in the West. I mean, obviously the essence doesn't change. Again, he's talking about things that are that you can change. And he says people who are puffed up, This, these are Prabhupada's words, as the Romans said, don't kill the messenger. You know, the... Um, he says, people who are puffed up with concocted notions, this is Bhagavatam Purport 428, 4.854, 4.854. People who are puffed up with concocted notions think that in the West you can do everything as it's done in another country. Maybe. Or they criticize we don't do everything as it's done. So they're puffed up with concocted notions. That's probably he says we should make all adjustments. And, of course, he's talking about the details. He's talking about the things which where we have the freedom to adjust it. He's not talking about our philosophy. He doesn't mean adjust our philosophy, change our practice. And so, but in the things that we can change, how we present ourselves, we, so to speak, material culture, how we dress, how we cook, you know, I mean, again, within the mode of goodness. He says make all adjustments, take all risks, make all adjustments, to make this movement work. And so to me, that's the challenge for us now. Because everything's not okay. And Prabhupada left us this powerful booming Hare Krishna movement that was it was a major influence in the West. And we have to we have to, we have to rebuild that for Prabhupada. And to do that, we have to be intelligent. We have to be shrewd. We have to really pay attention to what Prabhupada says. The, the image of Prabhupada as this very conservative figure is a myth. I mean, he was he was very conservative about some things, but I've written papers to be happy to send you at no charge to you, except the electricity to keep your computer on. But um, where I give page after page after page of quotes from Prabhupada, from his books, his lectures, everything, where he's urging us to adapt, to adjust, to find a way to make this movement work in the Western world. That's probably. So anyway, thank you very much. I guess uh, stop here. Pleasure to talk to all of you. Hare Krishna. And for all of you who are watching on Facebook, uh, thanks for watching. Oh, Robert Graham, my godbrother Rameshwar. By the way, Prophet also very specifically and with great detailed directed as BBT artist regarding dress. Oh, that's a. Uh, actually, Rameshwar, write me an email and we'll talk about that. Because uh, I have a lot of things to say about that. Okay, Hare Krishna. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Yeah.